You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're going to begin today. If you need to borrow a Bible or you don't own a Bible, we'd like to give you one. Um, you can raise your hand. You can go to the back. Toby will bring you one. If, uh, if, you, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please keep that. Put your name in it. You now have a Bible. If you just left your Bible at home and you want to borrow one, you just put it back on the back table when you, uh, when you leave today. So find 1 Peter chapter 2 there at the back of your Bible. So we've been looking at um, 1 Peter chapter 1 last week, chapter 2 this week, and are just marched through, through Peter, through 1 Peter. Now the, the, the cool thing was that we, we started by looking at Peter and who Peter was. And, and, and that Peter was a guy just like you and, my, you and me that I think many of us can relate to. Peter was a guy that was broken. He was um, very passionate towards the end of his life about Jesus. He went out and he wept bitterly because of a, of a heart. Jesus came to him on the shores of Galilee and he said to him, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. and You know that I love you. And, and we see um, in Acts chapter 4 when the Holy Spirit fell and Peter was restored and his ministry began, they began to do amazing things in the name of Jesus. And the people that were looking by said, these are unlearned and untrained men. And that was an accurate assessment. Peter wasn't a college graduate. He, he dropped out of school at a young age so that he could join the family business of, of fishing and, and working on the Sea of Galilee. He, he, he was just an ordinary guy. He knew how to fish, but he didn't know how to spell. And they said, this guy's unlearned, he's untrained. And, and yet God is doing amazing things through his life. And what did the council in Acts chapter 4 and 5, what did, they, what did they conclude? That Peter had been with Jesus. And that's the story of your life and my life if you know Jesus. Maybe you were one thing, but Jesus came in and changed your life and he made it something dynamic, something special. And maybe your life like Peter, all I am is a fisherman. I, I don't really have skills to do ministry or do work or do things. But yet you spend time with Jesus and God changes your life. Maybe you struggle with addiction or bondage to life and, and it holds you back and, and it makes your life difficult to have joy and have success. And Jesus comes and he's the great chain breaker and he breaks those chains in our lives and he makes us into something we could never become without him. And we see that as an example in Peter's life. And then we get to the letter that Peter wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit and we get these like really powerful, deep theological ideas and thoughts and progressions. And you're like, how in the world did an unlearned, untrained fisherman put these thoughts together? And, and if you didn't know Peter, you might think he was some Harvard graduate theologian. But yet we know him to be a person just like you and me. And last week we, we, we go through his progression. And this week, chapter two, if you want to, if you're a person that likes outlines, you take notes. I think if you read chapter two, this is basically what you're going to find in, as, a, as an outline. So you can write this down. In chapter two, Peter is commissioning us. He's commissioning you and he's commissioning me. Have you guys ever been commissioned to anything? Have any of you guys served in the Knights of the Round Table? And the king came and he took his sword out and he tapped you on one shoulder and then the other and then on top of your head and he, he knighted you, knighted the round table. Anybody? No? Have any of you served in the military and been commissioned to an office or, or to a promotion in your, in your military ranks? Some of you? Maybe some of you have been commissioned in, um, to the corner by your parents. 
go to the corner or to your room. Or maybe, maybe in school there's been a commission. But don't worry. If you've never been commissioned to anything, today is your day. You know what they say, right? Every dog has his day in the sun. Something like that. So today's your day. You guys ready? I'm commissioning all of you. I'll make the sign of the cross and Chuck Chuck Mindu. That's some weird thing I say that makes it official. That you've all been commissioned now. If I had a sword, I would be tapping you on the shoulder right now. According to God's word in, in 2 Peter and 1 Peter chapter 2, you are commissioned into the ministry. You are called into the ministry of God. Now, what do you, what do, you do for a living? Who, what do you do? Are you a water restoration expert? Do you um, deal with water damage and those kind of things? Are you a plumber? Are you a painter? Are you a fisherman? Are you a mechanic? And, and, and maybe some of us are those things. And you think that the, the missions work and the commission of being a minister is, is left up to the pastors and to the, the preachers and the churches and it's, it's their responsibility. But yet Peter tells us here something very different. Commissions every one of you with the same call, the same responsibility to go and share the gospel and be a minister of Jesus Christ. Did you realize that about yourself? If you're a Christian, then that's the commission and the call that you have. What was the very last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he left? Before they saw him go up in a cloud into heaven? He said, go into every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things that I have commanded. It's called the Great Commission. Who was the Great Commission given to, or who is it valid for today? The pastors? The missionaries? Or for you and me? For all of us, right? We're all commissioned to that call. The responsibility of making disciples is not just on the, on the ministers, the pastors, the missionaries. It's a call for each one of us. You might say, well, then if I'm a pastor and a missionary and a minister in this church, then where's my office? Well, God's given you a better office. Maybe you're a plumber and your office is some stranger's bathroom. And you get to go places I would never get to. And you can help them flush their sins away. And get their life straight. And you get to go into people's homes. And maybe you work at Walmart and, and you're a subversive for the gospel. And you, you get to go in um, as a secret servant, a secret agent into a place where a pastor, a minister would, would never be allowed or to go. And God has placed you as a, as a people all over in different places where, where, where all these lights can shine. And then he's commissioned every one of you. And, and the outline to, to Peter chapter 2 is that you have all been commissioned to the gospel. Amen? So you guys have all received your commission. Um, so Peter's going to start in chapter 2 and verse 1. But before we get there, he's going to start with that, that idea that's going to run all the way through here. Now it says, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1. First word, what is it? Okay, so we've bit, we got to this last, last week. Last week in verse 13, we got a therefore. So whenever you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, what does that mean? You have to see what it's there for. Or in other words, what I like is it's application. Okay, so the therefore makes you back up and read what you previously wrote. And then this is how you apply it to your life. So that would be like, hey, hey guys, there is the biggest blizzard storm that's coming here on Wednesday. It's going to bring high winds and hail storms and it's going to bring immense amounts of snow. Okay, that's the information. 
Therefore, I want you to go to Walmart. I want you to buy water, store food, fill your cars up with gas, board your windows, do what you're going to do. Therefore, make your preparations. And that's what a therefore is. It's the application to the information that you've been given. Now, I'm not saying there's going to be a storm here on Wednesday. That wasn't a weather prediction, just in case you got it twisted. It was just an analogy that it's a therefore to tell us what to do. And so he says, therefore, and what was the therefore? Well, in chapter 1, a couple of things I'm just going to highlight really quick. In verse number 16, he called us, and we talked about it last week, week to a life of holiness. So in, in, in the skinny, what does holiness mean? Some people are learning. Others of you, not so much. Just kidding. Or maybe you're just shy. You know all the answers. You just won't say them. Holiness, I want you to know this stuff. I want you to learn this stuff. I want you to, to progress in it and get it. Holiness just simply means set apart. Everybody say set apart. Set apart. It's what we talked about last week. That, that's what holiness unto the Lord means. You're set apart. What are you set apart from? The world, the things of the world, people that are not Christians. You know, there's this idea in the church, a philosophy of how we reach the world and the unsaved. And some would say, oh, we got to go out and we got to be just like them. And we got to have a, uh, we, we need to look just like the world. And that way, when the world comes in, they won't be able to see the difference. They won't know. And, and, and that's the way we'll get them in. And others are very radical. And we need to get in their face and tell them, you're going to go to hell if you don't come to church. And, you know, and, and, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But the, the reality is we have to be set apart. And then in your life individually as a Christian, Peter says, you have to be different than the world. If the world looks at you, if your friends that are not Christian, if they look at you and they just don't see any difference than anybody else, it's a problem because holiness is, is a set-apartness from the things of the world. That's what Peter tells us first. The second thing he tells us in chapter 1, verse 22, is that we have to love fervently. We have to love one another. The same thing that John said. So a holiness, a set-apart, then a love one for another. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. So he's going to get into you being commissioned as a minister and, and as a person who's been called to carry the, the light of Jesus Christ into the world as a believer in Jesus Christ. But before you can get there, there's something that's going to hinder your ministry. There's something that's going to hinder your fruitfulness in God. Uh, maybe sin, sin in your life, sin in your ministry. It's going to affect your ministry and your, your ability to do the things that he's going he's to call you to do. And he's going to call us here in a minute to some pretty high callings and some major promises from the word of God about your position in Christ and your elevated status as Peter is going to remind us that we stand in and, and, and call us to walk in that as ministers. But before we can do that, Peter says you have to deal with sin in your life. I love in Hebrews, one of my favorite scriptures, in Hebrews chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is telling us the same thing in, in, in just a little different way, but the same exact idea. Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Paul makes this same list of us as believers laying aside certain weights and sins. What I like about the one in Hebrews is that Paul tells us there's two different categories, sins and weights. So a sin, what is that? 
Well, I think that's the more obvious things in your life that are just blatant, black and white. We don't have to argue. We don't have to have a, a Bible scholar come in and help us decide. If you're lying, it's a sin. If you're murdering, if you're committing adultery, if you're blah, 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 it's black and white, it's clear cut, it's sin in your life, cut it out. And then Paul says, but not only just the sins, also the weights. What are weights? Maybe the weight in your life is a compromise. Maybe it's an area that Paul, as Paul describes it in Hebrews, as, as a, just that, a sandbag. Could you imagine a runner coming out to the running blocks in the Olympics, Usain Bolt? Fastest man that's ever lived. And he comes out to the blocks to run, and he's got big weights tied on both of his ankles. I shouldn't have used Usain Bolt as an example, because he'd probably still win with those weights, huh? But most of us, or most runners, if they came out and big weights tied to their waist and their ankles, they're, they're not going to run very effectively, right? And so Paul makes a distinction. First the sins, but the weights. You know, maybe there's something in your life, because the Bible says that all things for you as, as a believer are... are um, all things are okay, they're legal, but not all things are profitable. All things, you know, don't edify. And maybe there's things in your life as a Christian that God says that he can't use or that they're weights and that he needs to get rid of them. They need to go in your life. And so Peter's going to address a couple of these weights and sins in Second Peter. But, but, you know, we're going to take communion today. And one of the things that the, the Bible teaches why we as a church take communion twofold number one jesus said do this in remembrance of me so as we receive communion today we're going to do it to remember the amazing price that jesus paid on the on the cross for your sins and for my sins and number two paul tells us in communion that we do it as a time of self-examination he said let each one examine his own heart before he takes communion And people were taking communion in an unworthy manner. And as a result, Paul said, you have the sick among you. And God is judging you because because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. Therefore, let let each man examine his own heart as he takes communion. So Paul instructs us in what we're going to do today, that it's a time just to say, Lord, are there weights and sins in my life? Are there things in my life that you can't use, that you want to get rid of, that you want to change? And then as you guys know, we have sins of commission. And that's when you commit a sin. We also have sins of omission where God has told you to do something or called you to something and you've not yet done it, a sin of omission. Maybe there's something that you've omitted in your life that God's calling you to. And so as we take communion today after church, it's just one song for you to seek the Lord, let God speak to you and find out if you have these things. And so Paul says, um, Peter, I'm sorry, in verse one, he's going to mention a couple that are going to get in the way of your ministry. These are all horizontal sins, okay? So they're sins against people. So we have horizontal, and that's relational. And then we have vertical, and that's between us and God. Now, if, if this isn't right, then this isn't going to be right, and vice versa. If our relationship with God isn't right, and more importantly, then our relationship with people is not going to be right. So we have to keep them both um, clear and, and right. And so Paul's, or Peter, I'm sorry, is dealing here with some, some relational sins. So he says, laying aside all malice. So malice is basically um, concealed anger. Malice is a bitterness of the heart. It, malice develops into bitterness. You have some secret anger. You're mad about something. You let something fester in your life. It bothers you. It turns into bitterness. And the Bible says that that root of bitterness will destroy you. So bitterness is when you're so angry at somebody, you don't forgive them, you're so mad at them all the time. 
And the Bible warns us as believers, we got to get rid of that. If that's you here this morning, you have bitterness towards somebody or someone or something. It's time for you to ask God just, just to forgive that, to, to, to release that. Bitterness and keeping and holding on to bitterness in your life, it's like drinking poison and then waiting for the person that you're mad at to die. How well is that going to work for you? Not very well. But what's going to happen in your own heart, in your own life physically, you're going to become unhealthy. And then what happens in bitterness, when you allow that bitterness to fester in your life, what's really sad is that it affects the people that love you the most. The people that care about you. Because that person you're bitter at and angry at and can't sleep at night over thinking about how you're going to destroy their lives and how mad you are at them and unforgiven you are towards them, they're sleeping like a baby. But the people that live in your house, they're, they're around you, they're near you, and that bitterness is going to spoil over. And you're going to lash out at them because you want to lash out at somebody and something. And bitterness is going to destroy those that love you the most and those that you love the most. And it's not going to affect those that you're bitter at. And, and the Bible warns us over and over and over again, as Christians, forgive, forget, heal. And Peter, Peter reminds us. And then he says, all deceit. So any deceit, and in case you like want to cover some deceit, Peter says all deceit. Do you guys know what all means in the Greek? all so all any kind of deceit i don't care where it is whether it's an out and out blatant lie a deception anything you do any lie that you hold apart back from to to conceal a truth anything that is not on the up and up anything that is not yes and yes no and no anything that is there any deceit in your life and why do we have that kind of deceit often to get what we want if i told the whole truth if i exposed everything i it wouldn't work out the way that i want it to And so in order to get what I want, in order to receive what I want, I can't quite tell the whole truth. And Peter says to tell the truth, put lying out of your mouth, get rid of all deceit in in any forms, and then hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is probably one of our our biggest enemies as Christians. It's definitely one of our biggest enemies relationally. Because when people label you and decide that you're a hypocrite, then then you've lost your witness, your ability to, to share Jesus with people. You know, if I'm being honest, I, I think there's probably a little bit of hypocrisy in us all. I know in myself. And not, maybe not so, so much intentionally all the time, but hypocrisy is anything that's not real and honest. So if I've ever um, showed something on the outside and felt something different on the inside or been something different or covered a sin or a thing in my life, it, it, it's a form of hypocrisy. And I would say that there's probably to a little extent, a, all of us, a little bit of struggle in it. The word hypocrisy in Greek is, is hypocrito. And hypocrito was a common word that wasn't negative. It meant play actor or stage actor. It was a term for, the, for actors and actresses who would be on stage and, and they would wear a mask in a Greek play and they would be something else. It was, it was a hypocrite. They were pretending to be something they weren't. That's, that's where we get our English word hypocrite. It's when we pretend to be something that we're not. You know, and the world says, oh, I don't go to church. There's too many hypocrites in the church. Part of that's true. No reason not to go to church. Because if that's the case, then don't go to the movies because there's plenty of hypocrites there too. Don't go to Walmart because I'm sure it's full of hypocrites too. And if, you're, if your criteria is you don't go place where there's hypocrites, then stay home. <laughs> so... You know, but but again, and it's something like I said, not not that we don't have a, a piece of struggle along the way with a little bit of hypocrisy, but it definitely we, we, we don't want to we don't want to play Christian. You don't want to play, 
you know, righteous. You know, the good thing, one of the most amazing things um, I learned from Lydia's parents and Lydia's mom was there was just no hypocrisy in them. You know, and, and Cindy, people loved her so much because she was just so real. And she was a pastor's wife and, you know, she didn't always fit the role of the perfect little pastor's wife and what you should do and how you should walk and how you should act. But the one thing that people appreciated was she was just always herself and she was fun and she was loving. And they had just decided, Lydia's dad and mom as a pastor and, and, and in being in ministry their whole lives, that they weren't going to be fake. They weren't going to be pretend. There was no pretense around them. What you saw is what you got. It was the same way they were in churches, the same way they were at home. And, and they were just real people. And I think people appreciate that as, about us as Christians. And, and I think if in our, in our hypocrisy, if we, we try to pretend that as Christians we're something that we're not, it turns people off. And, and I'm not saying that that's an excuse for sin. Don't get it twisted. Oh, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm just hanging out at the bar with the guys because I just want to be myself. And Well, now you lost your witness for another reason. Maybe not your hypocrisy, but you're still not going to be telling them about Jesus. You've lost your witness. But just being real. Amen? So Peter says, get rid of the hypocrisy. And then he says, envy and all evil speaking. And so the Bible says in the area of envy that, that you, you should rejoice with those who rejoice. You should laugh with those who laugh. You should cry with those who cry. And, and so that, that's just very simple it is the opposite of envy. If, if your neighbor pulls up in a brand new car. Yeah, right. I mean, do you do you? Um, are you mad at him? Do you envy what he has? Wish you had it? In the area of envy, let me just tell you this as Christians. You know, for pastors, we have gift envy sometimes. I'll go to the pastor's conference, you know, and, and one of the pastors, man, this dude can preach his socks off, man. And, dude's, and I'm like, God, I wish I could preach like that, you know. And, you know, and I'm mad that he has that gift. And I want God to, like, take some of it back so I could get some of it, you know. And I'm envious of his, of his ministry gifts. And, and maybe in life, you know, you can relate somewhere. And... You know, and, and God spoke very clearly that, hey, I got plenty enough of that to go around. Your neighbor has a brand new car. Don't worry. I got I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I got plenty of money. If I want you to have that same car, I can give it to you. You don't got to be mad at him or envy him or wish he didn't have gifts or want him to fail so that you can succeed. Because guess what? You can succeed and he can succeed. I got enough power to go around for everybody, for every ministry, for every church. I got enough people. That, that, that we don't need to, to have envy because God can supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. Amen? And then he goes on and he says the last one is <coughs> evil speaking. Does that apply to anybody in here? <clears throat> so that's, again, very simple. Any evil speaking of anybody. How many of you guys spoke evil of President Obama in the last month? Does he, does he include it? We don't like that, but... And I'm guilty, but he's included. But the Bible, but Peter says, just put it away. Put away evil speaking of anybody, anything. Includes gossip or any other thing in your life. In verse 2, it says, as newborn babes. And here's, here's the crux of it. Desire. I want everybody to say desire. desire. The pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So he wants you to desire the pure milk of the word. And what is the result? That you may... So say desire, and the result is to grow, okay? I want to tell you, now listen, pay attention one time. If you heard, heard, heard one thing in church today, I want you guys to hear this. The number one way that you're going to grow in your Christian life is through reading the Bible on a daily basis. 
And it says it right here in Peter. It says it over and over and over and over and over again in the Scriptures. We have a little saying here because that's so true and so important. You guys know what it is? Read your Bible and pray every day. If you're new, you're like, dang, I didn't know I was going to Sunday school. What the heck is this? Little nursery rhymes in church. And it sounds that way. It sounds kind of um, remedial. Read your Bible and pray every day. But I'll tell you, there's nothing more powerful and profound I can tell you. And, and, and I've watched it for 20 years over and over and over again. I've seen a, hundreds, probably thousands of people come in church doors and leave. And some get it and some grow. And some, some people's life changes like Peter's did, like John's did. How John and Peter's life were so redirected into a, a, a fruit-bearing minister and person that God can use and is going to be blessed for all of eternity. And the people who get it and whose lives change and, you know, they get off drugs, they get clean. God blesses them with a future and a hope. And, 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 and it's always the people who get into the Word of God because it's the power of the Word of God that changes people's lives. It's the Word of God that will help you and make you grow. You know, we do that Bible app on our phones where we read the Bible every day through the thing. And, and you know, if you're in a little network, you can see who's on it. And, you know, from time to time, I'll, I'll get a ping or something from people that, are, that I know are being in the Word every day. And I look at their lives, and it's just reflective of their lives. They're growing. I see fruit in people's lives. And, you know, I can remember when I met with Toby. It was two years ago when I first got here. And I was, I was really impressed by just who he was and how he was growing in Jesus. And we got in the car, and we drove somewhere together. And, he was telling me how he's getting up and getting in the Word every morning. And it's like, you didn't need to tell me that. I can see that. I, I, there's so much growth in your life. And that only could, that's coming from one place. Because you're in the Word personally. And Peter says, desire the Word of God. Desire the pure milk of the Word of God that you may grow. There's a progression. Milk is described as Word. You know, I have, I have a newborn babe in my house that desires pure milk. And if she don't get it, oh my goodness. There's no stopping. She's going to scream. I don't know until she dies. I don't know. She's not going to stop screaming if she doesn't get that milk. And there comes times where she's just going to scream and scream and scream and scream because she needs that milk. She needs it to live. And Peter uses as an example, as a baby desires milk, so you should desire the word of God. What would it be like in your house if like you couldn't find your Bible and you couldn't get the word and you just started crying like my five-month-old daughter, Gabrielle? Ah! And somebody comes in, your wife's like, Obi, what's wrong with you? I can't find my Bible! Ah! Like, just desiring it so bad, you know? Like you, and it says to desire the word of God in that you're going to grow. And so um, th- there is a progression. The word of God is described for us as um, milk. In another place, it's the water of the word. And Jesus said it's the bread of life. You guys remember Matthew chapter 4? Satan comes to Jesus and Satan tempts Jesus um, three different times. And every time Jesus quotes the word of God and he said, it is written, it is written. And the last one, he says, he goes back and he quotes something out of Exodus. And he says that it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's Genesis to Revelation all part of it. Jesus was way back in Exodus quoting some obscure passages that they're all important when, the, when Satan came to tempt him. And that it's, it's that bread of life that sustains you. What do you eat? What did you guys have for dinner um, last this past Wednesday? Nobody remembers? But, but you're here and you look pretty healthy. 
You know, you know, reading the Word of God can be that way sometimes. You may not remember, and you say, well, I, you know, I read the Bible every day and, and grow, but I don't remember what I read yesterday. Well, you may not remember what you had for dinner Wednesday night, but the fact that you ate something Wednesday night means that you're healthy and you're here, right? And the Word of God is that way. It keeps you healthy in your Christian living. It keeps you, keeps you growing in the Lord. And that's what Peter says. Desire the Word of God that you might grow. And then he goes on, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So have you guys tasted the Lord is good? You know, I think for some of us that have been in church for a while, you, you know, God gives us these things we call them, Pastor Chuck used to call them golden nuggets. And, and maybe it's just, just amazing experience where God speaks to you supernaturally. He touches you in a way that you long for. And it's not the kind of experience that you might have every day of your Christian life. But you have a couple of those things that, that have just happened where you know that you know that you know that the Lord is, it loves you and that he's in your life and he's real. And you have these things where you've tasted that the Lord is good. How many of you guys last Wednesday had hamburger helper out of the microwave for dinner? Nobody? But if you ate a lot of hamburger helper out of the microwave and I took you down to Ruth Chris and I ordered you a, 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 a steak and lobster, are you going to desire then hamburger helper out of the microwave from then on? You're going to desire that Ruth Chris steak and lobster because you've tasted that it's good. And, and it's a snowball that rolls downhill. It gets bigger and bigger as you study, as you get in the word of God for yourselves. And Peter's telling us that once you taste the Lord is good, you just want more of it. And you want more of it. You know, if we're being honest, it, it's a struggle, right? It's, it's a struggle to be in the word of God every day. It's a struggle to read your Bible. I mean, you could go, I myself, my wife, she's got an amazing testimony. She reads her Bible every day. I think she's like on her seventh time through the Word of God in the one-year Bible. Seven or more, I don't know. Probably more by now, ten years where she's done it every year, completed it, read her Bible in the year. And I'll start with her in the year in February. If I make it to March, man, I'm doing good. And, you know, and then I miss a week or two. And then before you know it, it's June, and I'm still back in April somewhere maybe. And, you know, and I'm in the Word every day, and I'm teaching and I'm studying, but just haven't done amazing with that that program of read your Bible every day that way. But it's a struggle at times. And, you know, I often wonder, what, what, what is it that, that in our lives that makes us struggle and not, like Peter says here, to desire the pure milk of God's word? And, and really the answer is anything that ruins a real meal, right? What's you guys' favorite meal? Pizza. What is it? Elk steaks. So let's say your, your, your husband is in the kitchen. Your wife is in the kitchen and you're on the way home and they're making the most amazing favorite meal you've ever eaten in your life. And it is, you can't wait to get home and eat this meal. It is so good. It's your best. You've tasted it. It's, it's, it's the one you won't eat for a week for to get ready for. But this day on your way home, you stop off at McDonald's and you get a couple Big Macs a block from your house and you eat a couple Big Macs and a fry before you get home. How well are you going to eat that meal when you get there? You've wasted it by putting junk food in your life, right? And that's what, the, that's what Peter's talking about is that if, if, if we fill your life with junk, you're not going to have an appetite for pure milk. And so what is the junk? What are the little things in your life that are just junk food, but, but they're robbing your appetite for the word of God? You know, for me, just being honest, it's, it's the stuff I do on my phone, the apps I have on my phone, whether they be Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or games or, you know, if I find myself and my face has been glowing and not in a good way all day, you know. And I, I can lose my appetite to be in the Word of God. 
And if I eat a bunch of junk food, whether it's TV that I watch or, or, or things that I read, you know, I, I read a lot. I use, I use my phone to, to do a lot of reading and current events. And, you know, I'm constantly watching five, six different news channels and, and reading articles and different current event things and trying to keep up to date. But sometimes that's junk food. Oftentimes, so much junk food that now it's the end of the day and I really haven't spent any time in the Word. Amen? All right. Verse number four, he says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now, I love this next section because Peter is going to give us his own commentary on Matthew 16. I want you to turn to Matthew 16. Hold a finger there. Now, Matthew 16 is Peter's crowning moment. It's the highlight of Peter's life here on earth. When Jesus looks at him and, and gives him this great accolade, this great accomplishment. And so here we're going to get a little bit of Peter's commentary on, on what it says. And Peter says, coming to him, capital H. I'm, so hold your finger in Matthew. I'm going to read in, in, in Peter just for a second. I'll be over there in Matthew 16 in a minute. Coming to Jesus as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. That Jesus is precious and chosen by God. So there's this analogy that Jesus gives in Matthew 16 that Peter's going to pick up on just a little bit here. And so let's, let's look at Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. And it says, When Jesus came into the reason, region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah and one of the prophets. So, so Jesus brings Peter and the disciples up to this place. It's wonderful to go when we go to Israel. It's one of the highlights of the tour. It's the most northern place in Israel that Jesus ever went. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. And as you guys know, Jordan River is the lifeblood of Israel. It's the river that comes far from the north all the way in and ends in the Dead Sea in the south of Israel. And it brings life and it separates. It's the border of Israel. And, and the Jordan River, at the headwaters of the Jordan River, the water just comes right out of this giant rock. It's right out of the ground, out of a rock. It's the most crystal clear. It's green there. It's lush there. And in that place, you go there and you still to this day, you'll see the ruins of all the pagan temples that were built there prior to Jesus and that were still in existence at the time that Jesus was there. And it was in this place where, where, where Jesus brought the disciples. And there's all these options of all these different gods there at this place in Caesarea Philippi in the north of Israel at the headwaters of the Jordan River and choices to worship. And it's this place where Jesus looks, up, looks at him and says, well, who do men say that I am? And then he stops and they answer. Some say this, some say that. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And that's a question that you have to ask. And I have to ask, and the answer to that, to your personal question, will determine your all of your eternity. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? Now, before we get to Peter's answer, there's an analogy that we're looking at right now that the Bible lays out that Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the stone. And multiple places in the scripture, I'm going to highlight three of them, it talks about Jesus being the rock of your life and the rock of my life and the stone. 
The first one, we get the analogy from Moses. Do you remember Moses was with the children of Israel and they, they had no water and they came to Moses and they were murmuring and complaining that they had no water and God, Moses went to God and God said to Moses, I want you to go and strike the rock and water will come forth. And Moses came and he took his staff and he struck the rock and water came forth. And then a little bit later in the history of them wandering, the people came to Moses a second time and they said, Moses, we have no water to drink. You brought us out here to die. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and and he prays and he says, "These, these grumbling people are grumbling again, Lord, and they have no water to drink. And God says, I want you to go down, Moses, and I want you to speak to the rock and water is going to come out. And Moses comes down and he's angry at the people and he takes his staff and he says, must I smite this rock a second time? And he hits the rock and water comes out. And then, and then the voice from heaven comes and says, Yoo-hoo, Moses, come over here, buddy. We got to talk. We got a little problem. He says, Moses, I wasn't mad at the people. You misrepresented me to the people today. I told you to speak to the rock and you struck the rock. Therefore, you will not enter the promised land. And your hearts kind of break for Moses a little bit as you read that scripture because you think, man, Moses was a faithful guy. He was an amazing, he, you know, what he did and, and this one little sin and God's going to disallow him from going into the promised land. But you know, the truth is Moses was never going to go into the promised land because the law can't take us into the promised land. Only, only grace, only Jesus can take us into the promised land. And so God raises up a young man by the name of Joshua Joshua is a form of the name Jesus. And, and, and he's a type of Jesus. And Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Because only Jesus leads us into the promised land. But Moses could not go into the promised land because he broke the symbolism. Who was the rock that water came forth out of? Jesus said in the New Testament, He who lives and believes in me out of his life will flow torrents of living water. He said, Come to me, you who are thirsty. And I will give you water. And if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. That rock was who? That rock in the Old Testament that Moses struck twice, it represented Jesus Christ. He is the rock. And the first time Moses hit the rock, it represented the Jesus being crucified and dying on a tree. That he was smitten by men, he was crucified and he was going to die. Now when you and I sin or when we come to repentance, does Jesus need to be crucified a second time so that we can get saved? No, what do we do now on this side of the cross? If somebody wants to get saved in this room today, Jesus doesn't need to be re-sacrificed. What do we need to do? We need to speak to him. We We need to ask by faith that Jesus would come into our heart and be our Lord and Savior. And the symbolism was that Jesus died on the cross. And then after that, we we come by faith and we speak to Jesus and our lives change. And Moses broke the symbolism and he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Now, now we fast forward to um, this second example that Jesus gives that he is the rock. And Jesus, or Simon answers in verse 15, or Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Simon answered in verse 16 and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was Peter's answer, that he was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was the savior of the world. He was the son of the living God, thereby making him God in the flesh. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter. The word Peter, does anybody know what it means? It means rock. But it's a a small rock. It's a stone. 
It's a, it's a type you would skip across the water if you were skipping stones on a lake. And he said, you are Peter or rock. But upon this boulder, upon this rock, and the other word, the Greek word is Petra. Upon this Petra, I will build my church. You are Peter, little rock. But upon this big rock, this boulder, I will build my church, is what Jesus says exactly in verse 18. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Anybody who tells you that the gates of hell prevailed against Jesus and his church and God had to do a redo, know that they're not telling the truth. Because Jesus here says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Unless Jesus is a liar, the gates of hell to this day have not prevailed against the church that Jesus was going to build. In, in the Catholic theology and Catholic doctrine, if you take this verse here, they, they've taken it to say that Peter said that Jesus said he was going to build his church upon this rock, which is Peter. And that's why we have the function of a pope today, because Peter supposedly is the first pope and then every pope in succession from Peter to today. But, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus was not building his church upon Peter. We already know that Peter's flawed. Peter had a lot of problems. We would be in trouble today if the church of, of, uh, that Jesus was going to build was going to be placed upon the shoulders of Peter and his flaws. But Jesus said, you are Peter, little stone, but upon this rock, which is what? What's the big rock, the boulder? It's Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. It's Jesus upon Jesus and upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God upon that confession and upon Jesus, the big rock. God was going to build his church. Jesus was going to build his church and, the, and that the gates of hell will not going to prevail against it. And so back to first Peter. So Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You guys know Jesus is precious. Verse 5 says, you also as living stones. So now he's talking about you and me. And that even as Peter was a stone, that you and I are living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you are being built up a spiritual house. Do you guys know that, that um, the word church? Some people say you won't find the word church itself there in the Bible. But the, the Greek word is inglesia, which means basically we translate it as church. So the inglesia, what is the inglesia? The inglesia is, is the church. It's a, it's, the church was born when? Does anybody know? Church was born in Pentecost, right? There was no church prior to Jesus dying on the cross or the Holy Spirit being poured out. The early church started at Pentecost when God's Holy Spirit was, was poured out. And today you and I are a member of this church, or we call it the Bride of Christ. You know, there was, a, there was some controversy, not controversy, there was some discussion in our church um, a while ago when, I don't know, it got popular to wear hats in church. And all the kids were coming in and they had their hats on in church. And so some people didn't like it. They felt it was disrespectful. And so they asked the board to convene. And what are we going to do about them wearing their hats in church? So we talked about it and we, we came back to him. We said, hey, technically, the church is wearing hats in the building. The, 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 this is not the church. The, the church is the people that come. We, we make up the church. Easter Sunday, we met out in the parking lot. And that was the church because that's where the church was meeting. And so they can keep their hats on. 
Because, because the, the church is wearing hats in the building. This building is not, is not the church. The church is, is made up of the people. And Peter says that you are um, a part of that church and that you are a living stone and your body is, is a living stone. In verse number five, being built up a spiritual house. And so you have a spiritual house, a spiritual building that you're building, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hey, let's tackle this idea that you're called to the priesthood. Um, it's here. It's also looked down at verse number nine. I was going to wait till verse nine, but let's just tackle it right now and then we'll go back and finish up the middle verses. In verse nine, it says, you are a chosen generation. What does it say? A royal priesthood. So twice in four verses, Peter says that you are the priesthood. Yeah? Am I making stuff up? So, so twice now, Peter tells us that, that we are a part of, let's call it the New Testament priesthood. So I told you guys you're going to get anointed today. You didn't know you were going to leave here a priest, right? So everybody like, I don't know, hold your right hand up and I'll... I'll make the sign of the cross and, and I'll anoint you priest. But, but really, biblically, the function of the priest is an Old Testament deal. In the Old Testament, there, there was the function of a prophet and a priest all the way through that was necessary. And the, the way that it would work is that God's people would come to the priest. There was usually the tribe of Levi. And the people would make requests of the, of the priest. And the priest would go and talk to God. And then God would give him an answer. And then the priest would come back to the people and give the word. Or the people would go to God and God would speak to the priest and the priest would go and tell the people what God said. But when Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil of the temple was rent from what? From top to bottom. That the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom and that that gave you and I the same access into the Holy of Holies as, as anybody prior in the Old Testament. There was no more role of a priest or no more mediator between man and God except for one, the man Christ Jesus, and that you and I are now a royal priesthood, as Peter says. You're called into this ministry of the priesthood a New Testament priest that offers sacrifices before God, that has the same position and opportunity. Now, now we have, if we look at religious systems around us, and I get a lot of questions as a pastor on this, so I want to address it because it, it, it's misunderstood, it's mistaught, when the reality is there is no function of today of, of a priest the way we see it in some of the religious systems around us. The Old Testament has a law. It's a law of God. I don't know why God laid it out, but he did. He said that in the Old Testament law, it says that you, one person could not be both king and priest. They were both high offices. One was spiritual and one was, was social and one was um, political. But he said in his law, he didn't want the same person, one of his kings and one of his priests, to be the same function. So you could not act as both king and priest. You guys remember who the first king of Israel was? It was a guy named Saul. Now, he's not recognized biblically as the first king, but David is recognized as the first king of Israel. But Saul committed a grave sin. He went out and he attacked a nation and he came back and they wanted to offer a sacrifice unto the Lord in celebration. And he called for Samuel, the prophet at the time, and he said, Samuel, come and offer this sacrifice unto the Lord. And Samuel didn't show up and he started getting nervous. And after a week, he went and he acted as priest and he offered the sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel showed up and Samuel was twisted. He was so angry. He took the king Agag that they had in, in, in capture. And it says in the Bible that he hacked him up. 
He gagged him up like he hacked this guy up. Then he goes to Saul and he tells Saul that that the kingdom has been removed from you today for this grave, terrible sin that you have done. And no longer will you be king. It's going to be taken from you and given to another. And you think to yourself, what did Saul do that was so terrible? Now we know Saul, he was terrible. But that day, what he did was he offered a sacrifice to the Lord. But his sin was that he acted as priest. And he could not act as both priest and king. Now that brings us to Jesus. Jesus, do you know that you know why Jesus started his earthly ministry and was baptized at 30 years old, as opposed to not getting the show on the road a little bit earlier? Baptized at 30, 30 years old, dies at 33. Three years he did his earthly ministry, and then, and then he went home to be with the Father, sent the Holy Spirit. He couldn't, because Jewish law says you couldn't be a rabbi until you were 30 years old. And for 30 years of Jesus' life, he lived a pretty obscure, quiet life. The Bible doesn't tell us much about it. A little snippet when he's a baby, a little bit when he's 12 years old, and then nothing until he's 30. But in order for Jesus to be sinless, he would have had to completely keep the law of Moses. And so he lived his life for 30 years and followed every jot and tittle according to the law of Moses. The only person that's ever followed it perfectly. But the law of Moses says that one person cannot be both priest and king. And what is Jesus? He's both priest and king. So we got a problem. Enter Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a special priest of only one kind. He's not of the Levitical order. He's, he's of the order of Melchizedek. He flies on the pages in Genesis, meets up with Abraham. Abraham pays tithes to him and he disappears. And then not until Hebrews, Paul is giving commentary on what happened in Genesis. And he, he gives us some insight on who this Melchizedek guy is. So this priest in the Old Testament, it says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So if anybody tells you today that they're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, just know that unfortunately for them, there's no possible way unless they're greater than Jesus. Or unless they're Jesus himself, because there's only one person that's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that's Jesus. And God laid out a plan so that his son could be both, both king and priest and not break the Levitical law. And so we have one priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that's Jesus Christ. And so Peter, back to Peter now. We are a holy priesthood. And then down in verse number 9, you are a chosen, chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So if you want to bag about, brag about being a priest, you guys are all priests. You guys are a part of a royal priesthood. Just not after the order of Melchizedek. That's not biblical. That's not true but you're all a royal priest. Do you guys feel good about yourselves right now? I'm a royal priest. Hey, I'm loved. I'm precious. I'm holy. But you are called to a royal priesthood because you're all commissioned to the gospel. You're all commissioned to the ministry and the work of God. Peter gives you a pretty high accolade here and a pretty serious call that, that you are called into ministry and that we are all the royal priesthood of God that's commissioned to share the gospel. It's not just the pastor's call, somebody in church. It's your call. It's my call. And all of us one day are going to stand before Jesus and we're going to give account. We're going to give account of our lives. We, we dealt with something on Wednesday. You know, you know what happens in church? Maybe you guys have, have been through this already yourselves. But, you know, people come and go in church. 
And sometimes people leave churches. That's okay. People leave for good reasons. They move. They find a different church. God calls them somewhere else. They want to serve somewhere else, do something else. Lots of good reasons for people to leave and try and move different churches and lots of healthy reasons, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I, For my heart for, for that is that you, you find a church where you're growing. You, you go in a church where, you, where the word's being taught and, and you you're, you're find a place to serve. But unfortunately, sometimes people leave because, oh, the pastor, he... He wears some lame black button-up shirt with like fake leather on the shoulders and I just couldn't handle it or, you know, or, or this person upset me or that person let me down. And, you know, the lesson is to keep our eyes on Jesus. And if you keep your eyes on Jesus and not the people around you, let me tell you something about people around you in churches. They're going to fail you. Things are going to fail you. But Jesus never will. Jesus never will. But in the, in the area of a commission or call, unfortunately, some of those people now, they, they stay home and they don't do anything. And one day they're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to say, oh, well, I went to that church with the, you know, and then that pastor did this or that church did that or that board did this or said that. And that's why I stopped going to church. A bunch of hypocrites. And that's why I didn't do anything for you. And that's why I didn't follow the Great Commission. And that's why I didn't lead anybody to Christ or share my faith. Is that going to fly? Not going to fly on that day, right? we're almost done you guys we're going to um receive communion here in a minute let's finish up these last few verses let's go back so you are a royal priesthood you're commissioned and then in verse five it says you are a living stone be a building built up spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ therefore it is also counted in the scriptures contained in the scriptures behold i lay in zion a chief cornerstone elect precious and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are, who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I told you there was three types that I was going to highlight of Jesus being a stone. I only highlighted the first two. The third one comes out of the Old Testament, a true story that the the chiseling and the hammering. The Bible says that when the temple of Solomon was built, that there would be neither hammer nor chisel on the site of the temple. The sound of hammer nor chisel. They, they, they built and they quarried the, the stones off site and they sent them to site. And when they got there, they fit so perfectly, you couldn't put a credit card in the gap between the stones, these massive stones, because the, the workmanship was so precise. Today, the place where they quarried the stones is, a, is an Arab bus station there in Jerusalem, not far from the place where the temple is, sits today or would sit today on Temple Mount. It happens to be just under um, Gordon's Calvary or Golgotha or the place of the skull. That place in the mountain where you look at it to this day, it looks like the face of a skull and on top of it where Jesus would have been crucified. And, and that's where the quarry was that was there and they would send stones to the temple and a particular stone showed up at the temple and the builder didn't know where it went and what to do with it. So he threw it over the corner of the temple into the Kidron Valley and grass grew up, grew up over the top of it. And two years later, the, the temple was done except for the most important, the chief cornerstone. And so they sent back to the quarry and they said, we, we just need the chief cornerstone. And they said, we sent that stone already. So they went back and one guy remembered that stone that they threw over the side into the Kidron Valley and they went and retrieved it. And sure enough, the stone that the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. And that's an example of Jesus, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone 
in your life, in my life, and that the world would reject him, and the world would get it wrong, but he has become the chief cornerstone. Amen? Amen. We're going to um, receive communion together as a family of believers. I'm uh, really excited about, about communion. As I shared already, just two things. We're going to have the worship team go ahead and come on up. As we receive communion together, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So what we'll do is we'll have you in a minute. We'll have you come up, take the bread and the cup. Just go back to your seat. And then what we want everybody to do is just spend one song to seek the Lord for themselves. I'd encourage you during that time, during that one song, as you pray, as you talk to God, that you also listen. Any of you guys got like a really cool best friend that calls you and you pick up the phone and you say, hi, how are you? And they say, they're done talking, they just hang up. No, sometimes we pray that way. Sometimes we talk, 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 talk to God. And we never listen. And, and, and prayer is two-way communication. And, and this is a time where as we pick up the phone to call God that, that we not only want to talk, we also want to listen. And so I'd encourage you first as you take the bread and the cup and, and you receive the elements of communion. The bread, as you know, it represents the body of Jesus Christ. The cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as he, as he instituted and taught the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. So the first, the first thing we do is we, we thank the Lord. You know, the, 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 the matzos, which is this bread that has, doesn't have leaven in it that we use. Leaven in the Bible is a type of sin, and Jesus was without sin. And that's why we take it with one leavened bread. The bread has lines in it before we break it up, and they remind us of the stripes that were placed upon Jesus' back. The bread has little holes in it, and it reminds us of the holes that they put in his hands and in his side and in his feet. I often take the bread in my hand and I break it because Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. They put a bag on Jesus' head and they, they punched him in the face so he would receive the full brunt of the blow. They spit on him and they ripped his beard from his face. They whipped him with the cat of nine tails. The Bible says that his visage was marred beyond that of any other human. He was unrecognizable as a man. He would have had such swelling in black and blue and trauma that he would have, you would have gasped to look at him. And these pictures you see, even as, as, as realistic as some of them try to look, none of them would do justice to the, the, the gruesome reality of what Jesus would have looked like on the cross. And he said, do this in remembrance and means. So communion is a time to remember that you've been bought with a price. And that's a, that you've been blood bought. Not with silver or gold, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. He has paid for your sins and has bought you as a child unto him. And then Paul tells us in the, later in the New Testament, and he had, they were doing communion like we are in our church today, and they were messing it all up. And Paul writes him a letter, and he says, hey, you guys are messing it up. You're doing it wrong. And he said, he said communion is a time to examine your own heart. Communion is a time to just check and see if there's those weights and those sins there's something in your life that you need to get right with God. Communion is a time to get right. And so I'm encouraging each one of you as you come up to go back to your seat, spend a minute thanking the Lord and, and giving Him thanks and doing it in remembrance. And then pray and ask God if there's something in your heart that He wants to work on. And listen, and God, I believe God's going to speak to you today. Lydia and I will be up front. If anybody would like individual prayers, we see, receive communion. We'd love to pray for you, encourage you. If you've never asked the Lord Jesus in your heart and you want to ask the Lord Jesus in your heart or you want to know that you know today that if you died today, you'll be ready for heaven.
Come up and let Lydia and I pray for you, and we'll lead you in a prayer to Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Come on up, you guys.